Let's pray together. Our God, we pause for a moment to ask you again for help. I pray for help that you would please be with my mouth and the thoughts of my mind, that what is said is true to your word and would hug tightly to it. It would be faithful. It would be helpful. It would be carried by the Holy Spirit to do the work that only the Spirit can. Pray that you would free me in every way, even beyond my preparation to say what you might to your people, but again, constrain me to your word. And we pray for all of us, O God. Jesus has a warning for us today, so help us to be warned. And Jesus has something to say to us today, so help us to hear. And in doing so, help us to be changed. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On a cold January morning in 2007, a man sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C. and began to play the violin. He played for 45 minutes, during which time in the morning rush hour commute, nearly a thousand people or more passed by. Every now and then, a person here or there would stop and listen for a moment. Some, even as they were rushing to work, threw in a few bucks or some spare change into his case. And after playing six pieces for mostly 45 minutes, most of the thousand people ignored him and walked right past him that day. At the end of that 45-minute session, he collected the total of $32.17. It turned out that the man sitting there in his baseball cap and casual clothes was no ordinary man. In fact, the Washington Post was trying to conduct a social experiment. The man's name was Joshua Bell, and he was a world-famous violinist. That year itself, he had conducted 200 concerts around the globe internationally. Just a few days before that event, he had packed out a concert hall in Boston where the average cheap seats went for $100 apiece. In fact, while he was sitting there among the commoners at the metro station in Washington, D.C., he was playing from a violin that was worth $3.5 million. The Washington crowd that morning of all those commuters were treated to a free concert by one of the world's most renowned musicians that others had paid hundreds of dollars to just barely see, and he was standing there, and nobody even noticed. Everybody missed it and walked right on by. Greatness was standing right in front of them, and they had no eyes to see it. In our passage today, the disciples of Jesus Christ are in danger of doing that same thing. That is, they're walking with Jesus in the temple courts, and it was packed, sort of like rush hour at a metro station in D.C. It was packed because it was Passover, and it would be at the time where all the Jewish people from all over the place would have come for that day into the temple. And there they were. There were thousands of them, perhaps hundreds of them for sure. There were people here, there, and everywhere. And in the midst of all of that human people, all that traffic, that mob, there stood in the corner a woman, a widow. Mark tells us specifically, a poor widow. You could see her there, standing in her shabby clothes. You would have hardly noticed her. I promise you, at most, you would have pitied her. You might have thrown a few coins her way, but you would have hardly noticed her. You would have walked right past her just as the disciples were about to as well, except that Jesus says to them, stop, look. And you can imagine they must have said, at what? At who? 
And you can imagine that Jesus would have pointed and said, at her. Look at her. The disciples didn't know it, but they were standing by a spiritual giant. They didn't have eyes to see it, but they were looking at a model of what it means to be a follower of God, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here before their very eyes was a picture of what Jesus meant when he said, come be my disciple. If they knew who they were looking at, I can tell you they would not have pitied her. They certainly wouldn't have walked by her. They would have stopped and stared and took notes and listened and learned what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So, We are in Mark chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, please turn with me there. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that. We'd love for you to have the scriptures at home to be able to read. Mark chapter 12, this is on page 849. This is the passage Jordan read for us in verses 38 to 44. And when we get to this section, we're with Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to call our attention to two different groups, two different people. On the one hand, he's going to point to some scribes, and then he's going to point to this widow. And to one, he's going to say, look out, and to the other, he's going to say, look. One group, he's going to say, watch out, and then to the other, he's going to say, watch, beware, and be aware. He's going to point to the scribes and say, watch out, because if you imitate that, it will be condemnable. And then he's going to point to the widow and say, look, watch, because if you imitate that, it will be commendable. And he's going to give you these two pictures for you to see. He starts with, watch out, beware, look out. Here's the caution, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, the first people that he points to are the scribes. The scribes, as we've been working through the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, we know these are the religious leaders of the day. You would imagine these would be the model examples of what it means to be a follower of God. You would imagine this would be who you'd point to. This would be the person you'd imagine you'd stop and stare at and study and take notes on what it means to be a disciple. But here, Jesus is going to essentially say to them, listen, I don't see things as you see them, and you obviously don't see them as I see them. Jesus had almost x-ray vision and could see past the pretenses to the heart. And he told them, listen, here's what the scribes actually are. Beware. He said, they like to walk around in long robes, meaning they didn't dress like normal folk. They were always in uniform. Whatever it was that distinguished them from everyone else and set them apart as devout and pious and holy and religious unto God, you couldn't miss them because of the way they dressed. And they loved that. He says they loved being greeted in the marketplace, meaning... Nobody ever walked by the scribes. If they were in the metro station, nobody just walked by. Everyone stopped and greeted them. Titles like rabbi, teacher, father. 
And they love these titles. If you walk by a scribe, you, you broke out your camera so that you could take a selfie with them. Everybody wanted to be with the scribes. Everyone greeted the scribes when they were in the marketplace. He says they loved the best seats in the synagogue. They didn't sit there where you're sitting. They sat here. In fact, they sat in the front of the synagogue facing the congregation. You know how intoxicating it is to drink that in? That as people are looking to God, they have to look at you. As they're facing God, they have to look past your face to see him. They love the best seats in the synagogue. And they love, Jesus says, the places of honor at feasts. They always had VIP seating. You know, if they went to a wedding like the rest of us, they wouldn't be out in the reception room trying to find their name card to know what table they're seated at. They knew. Table number one right next to the bride and groom, every wedding, right? Because that's where they have the places of honor at feasts and festivals. That's who they are. And yet, behind all this piety, behind all this religious show, they couldn't hide from Jesus the fact that they were at their core. He says they devoured widows' houses, Right? We're not told exactly how they did that. There's some ideas on how it could have been. But the point you're supposed to get is, look, behind all this piety, they were preying on the weak. They were exploiting the lowest of Israel. I mean, widows held a special class in God's heart. They were among the lowest and the least of society, the weakest. There was laws in place to protect the widows. And yet the ones that the God of Israel had laws to protect are the ones they are devouring, exploiting. And they hide behind their long, showy, pretense prayers. That is, they have lots of impressive words when they pray. Except all those words are aimed at the men and women who hear them, rather than the God that they're speaking to. Jesus has this series, you hear it, of jabs and uppercuts. And through it all, he's trying to expose that the religion of the scribes boils down to a big outward show aimed at being seen by men. That's what the whole thing is. If a scribe was standing there, no one walked by, they all stopped, they all stared, they all took notice, and the scribes loved that. Now listen, we know the scribes are the bad guys on this side of the story. We read this story, we, we don't have a doubt about who the bad guy in the story is. The scribes are the bad guys, and yet Jesus says to us what? Beware. Look out. Watch out. Because even though you know very well they're the bad guys in the story, there is a tendency, a slippery slope in your heart that could take religion and make it all about you. He, he says, beware, look out, watch out. You know they're the bad guys, but be careful because there's this slippery slope in the human heart that can take spirituality and God and religion and make it about you that you want to be seen and you want to be noticed and you want to be recognized. Listen, I know the scribes are the bad guys. I know they're the bad guys, except I have prayed prayers that were perfectly arranged to make sure that everyone who heard it was impressed. And I was more concerned with how people thought of my prayers than sincerely speaking to the God I was praying to. Beware. Watch out. Look out for that. I know these are the bad guys. And yet, just yesterday, I mean yesterday, 
I received a text from a good friend who's in ministry. And his text was to me, I have one confession to make for you. Please hear this out. He said, in prepping to preach this week, I just felt this overwhelming need again to be impressive, to perform, to have people hear my words and think they were so insightful and so impressive. And then he lamented at the end of his text, 30 years I've been a Christian, and this is still an issue for me. My text back to him was, brother, I read your text, got on my knees and confessed the same things. Beware. Watch out. Look out. Can I tell you something I wrote? Do you know how weird it is to prepare a sermon on the condemnation of the scribes for seeking to be impressive to men and hoping that that sermon will be impressive to men? Do you know how Do you see how deep that thing goes? I am ready to tell you how condemnable it is for us to practice religion or do things for God in a way that is aimed at being impressive to men, and I hope that that's impressive to men. Beware. Watch out. Look out. You know they're the bad guys, but Jesus is warning you there's this slope, this slippery slope in your heart. He says, beware of a kind of religion that takes God and makes him a pawn in your pursuit of human approval and human applause. One thinker, I read this one guy, and many writers have since elaborated on this idea, but he he talked about idols. And he said idols are not just wooden things or graven images that you bow down and pray to. Idols are anything in your heart that takes the place of God, right? Right? All of us have stuff like that. Anything that you go, this is what I really need. This is what I trust in. This is what would make my life perfect. And if I didn't have this, this is what would make my life awful. And he talked about idols. And he talked about idols in two ways. He said we have sort of near idols and far idols. Or or some call it sort of surface idols and deep idols. And he said the deep idols are the things that you crave, that you're out for, that you feel like life will be whole if I have this. Things like comfort, things like approval, things like power, things like control. That's what you need. That's what you feel like. If I have this, then life will be whole. And then there's near idols, surface idols, and those are the things you use to get there. So for example, you're feeling lousy. You, you hate yourself. You're not having a good day, whatever. Your deep idol, your deep longing is comfort, pleasure. Your worst nightmare is to feel that way. So what do you turn to? Some turn to food, some turn to TV, some turn to sex, any number of surface idols. But all they are are means to get that end, which is what I need more than anything else is comfort. Here's the irony with religion. When you're a scribe, you take God and make him a surface idol because he's just a means to get what you're really after, which is human approval and applause. You're not out to get God anymore. He's just a means to an end. He's just a path for you to get what you're really after. And so if that means prayers, you'll pray the longest, most impressive prayers aimed at God, but to get what you're really after, which is the applause of men. The weird, twisted thing about scribes and about religion is God could just become a means to the ends of what we're really after. And the gospel comes. Jesus' message is, listen, God is the ends. Everything else is the means to get him. He's the great treasure and prize in the Christian faith. All that we do, we do to have more of him, not use him to get some other thing. And so Jesus tells us, beware. 
Look out. Watch out for the scribes and how they live, and watch out for that stuff in your own heart. But then the scene shifts, and we travel with Jesus a little further into the temple, and now it shifts from him saying, watch out, to watch this. From saying, look out, to look at this. It's in verses 41 through 44. Listen to what it says. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So now Jesus is in a different part of the temple. He's sitting opposite the treasury, and and scholars tell us there were these different offering boxes along the wall. And the way that it worked was it was just sort of put along the wall, and the people of God, as they came to worship, they could just go to these boxes and drop in free will offerings, donations. And these different boxes went to different things. So you had boxes that were for wood, and some for sacrifices, and some for other things in the temple, or to help the priests. You had these different boxes. And the way that it worked is the people would come in, Often they'd register what they're giving with a priest who would announce out loud, you know, $100 for the temple offerings. And then the folks would go. Now, now the way that it worked, remember, this is the day before dollar bills. So everything's in coins. So you got this big bag of coins and you'd go over to the box and you'd drop in all your coins into that metal box. Can you imagine $500 in nickels? A thousand dollars in coins, how it clinked and rattled, and the sound of it could be heard in the entire courts as you stood there, sort of slowly pouring in your coins. And that's what the rich did. They came in and they made these incredible contributions. And the clinking and the rattling of the coins filled the temple courts, and everybody would have done what? Stopped and noticed. And take a note because they were in the presence of spiritual giants. And then comes a poor widow. A nameless, shabbily dressed poor widow. She takes out two small copper coins. If you put them together, you got a penny. Uh, The equivalent today would be working minimum wage and five minutes worth of work. That's what she had. You rub those two coins together, you get a penny, and she put it into the box. I can assure you, it did not make a sound. Like a tree in the forest that no one was there to hear, nobody heard those coins. And I can assure you, nobody took notice, nobody paid attention, and nobody saw her. Except for one. Except for Jesus, who then, verse 43, called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I want to give you two things that Jesus says and does here that I think are worth noting, and then we'll be done. Here's the first. Simply that Jesus saw her. 
If I were preaching on giving today, I know what my point would be, which is, listen, Jesus saw what you put in the offering box, right? Jesus is watching when that plate comes by, but I'm going to save that sermon for closer to when our budget time is around, so just keep that in the back of your mind. So, but I do want you to hear, Jesus sees her. You think of what we just said. Everything the scribes do was to be seen, to be noticed, to be recognized. And listen, that's not a bad thing. There's this thing in us that wants to be affirmed. That's not bad. In fact, Mark twice has told us the Father himself spoke affirmation over the Son. In chapter 1 with the baptism, in chapter 9 at the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I love this boy for the whole world to hear it. And the Bible tells us that a Christian will come to the end of his life and that God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. There's this right longing for us to be affirmed. But that good desire turns dark. It gets twisted when the approval of men becomes more important to us than the approval of God. Then that men see us becomes to us more significant than that God sees us. The scribes did everything to be seen. And yet here's this poor widow. She is unseen by everyone, unnoticed by everyone, invisible to everyone. Nobody takes note of her, but Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her. And I want to give you just one word of encouragement from that, which is simply this, that not one sincere thing done for Christ, however small, However unimpressive, however insignificant, however poor, however weak it may be, is missed by Jesus Christ. Not one sincere thing done for Christ, offered to him, no matter how small or how impoverished or how pitiful it might be, is ever missed by Jesus Christ. Jesus promised, if you give a cup of cold water to a disciple in my name, I will not forget that. Nothing done sincerely offered to Christ, is ever forgotten. It's, it's like my friend Dan Coe, who's the pastor of the church plant in Boston that we help, uh, in Malden. A, a week ago on Facebook, he put up a picture. It was a picture of a, a drawing that his two-year-old daughter made. Drawing is quite a stretch, by the way. What, what it was, was it was a crumpled piece of lined paper, not even smoothed out straight, and it had two squiggly orange lines. I mean, you would throw that thing in the trash. He put it on Facebook. And then he posted this. This is what he wrote. He said, it doesn't look like much, but my Addis, that's her name, drew it for me. And then he said, the subject really changes how we value the object, doesn't it? God loves his children. Our broken attempts to worship him are beautiful to our Father. That two squiggly line orange paper is going to go up on the fridge and is on Facebook for the whole world to see. Two squiggly lines, just like two copper coins that Jesus put on display for the whole world to see. Do you see what she gave me? That's the heart of God. It, it's like a preacher when I was in college. My favorite pastor was this pastor named Stanley Key. And he told this story of a dad who was working outside in the yard. 
And he said, Dad was outside digging and doing gardening and all this stuff in the noon hot day sun in the middle of the summer, 100 degrees out. And his little boy was out in the yard working with Dad. Just a little kid playing in the dirt as Dad was working. And at the middle of the day, Dad stood up and he stretched and he wiped his sweaty brow and he stretched out his back. And the boy seeing this ran into the kitchen. He ran into the kitchen, and he tiptoed, and he grabbed a glass. It wasn't a clean glass. He didn't even know to open the dishwasher. Just grabbed the first thing that was on the counter. And then he could barely reach the, the faucet, and so he turns on the faucet. Doesn't even know to turn it to the cold side and leave it on for a little while. He just pours a little bit of water into this dirty glass, lukewarm water. He doesn't even know to clean his muddy hands before he does it. And so now the dirt is dripping into that water. And so then he closes the faucet and he brings out this cup and he gives it to dad. And Stanley Key said, what does dad do? Does dad go, don't you know you should have picked a clean glass? And don't you know you were supposed to turn the water to the cold side and let it run for a little while? And didn't you know to at least wash your hands so it have a clean? He said, no dad would do that. Your dad would take that cup and he'd swig back the whole thing, drink it to its last drop, because his son had brought this to him. He said it wasn't perfect, it was pitiful, but it was sincerely offered. Jesus told this story and his spirit ensured that it would be recorded in the gospel so that wherever this story of Jesus is told, this nameless poor widow made it in. Like he took these two copper coins and put it on the fridge in heaven for everybody to see. It is an encouraging thing to us wannabe scribes who want so badly to be seen to know you've been seen. You have been noticed. You have been recognized. The eyes that matter the most watch you. And anything you offer to him however broken, however imperfect, however impoverished, as pitiful as two coins would be, he takes note. He remembers. He records. He promises to reward. Is that not an encouragement to you in the various capacities and callings God has for you? Mom, when you're at home and nobody in the world knows that you cut another sandwich and the sides off and did another load of laundry, Whatever you do sincerely unto the Lord, he remembers, he sees, he takes notice. Nursery workers and GCM, and I think of some of our ladies who have spent nights at the hospital with Mary when she was sick. I wrote to them just to tell them, you know, 50 years from now, you won't even remember that you did that, but Jesus will. He will not forget that when you visited the sick, it counted as if you visited me. Your meals that you brought to her or how you've cared for her in the smallest, simplest ways he sees. The desire of the scribes is to be seen. This poor widow is seen. It's available to you in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the second thing. Did you hear what Jesus said? Not only did he see her, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. You want to go time out. More. Right? Don't, isn't there a part of you at least where he goes, Jesus, come on, what do you mean she put in more? She put in more. She gave so little you couldn't hear the clinking. Their offerings, you could buy whole wings for the temple. Hers, you, you couldn't buy a pigeon 
for a sack. I mean, you, it was so insignificant. What do you mean she gave more? So it, it feels like what Jesus is doing is Jesus just being Jesus. He's so nice, right? He's just encouraging her. So this is sort of like the best effort award. You know what I mean? Like when, you play, when I played Little League Baseball, there were the kids who got the best hitter award. I got the best effort award, right? And you know what that means. You couldn't hit, but you gave it your all, right? That's her. She gave more than everybody else. And you want to be like, Jesus, what are you talking about? But listen, if you saw it as Jesus saw it, you would not patronize her. And you would not pity her. You would not pat her on the head. You would take a seat at her feet and take notes and learn what it means to be a person of faith and learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Why? Verse 44 for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus is saying, you know how the rich gave? We would be in that, by the way. You know how they give? They give out of their margin. They give the way that we give, meaning, look, we all give, but it's not like, it changes where we're going to go for lunch today. We don't give like that. We give, but not in such a way that all, all of a sudden we're not going to travel anymore. Or we give, but it's not like we're going to live in a different town because of how much we're giving. None of us give like that. We give what we can spare. Jesus' point is she spared nothing. She gave her all. We gave in the margin to what we can afford in such a way that it might put a little dent on our life, but it doesn't affect much. You're not going to stop eating at the restaurants or trap. She gave her all. See, we would compare and go count what they put in the box with what she put in the box. And Jesus would say, no, 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 I count different. I count what they kept versus what she kept. And now you tell me who gave more. Who gave more, Jesus would say. The point is, they made a contribution. She gave her life. All that she had. In fact, commentators say the original word here in the Greek is the word bios. It's the word for her life. She, she didn't just put in two coins. She put her life into that box. Listen, none of us give like that. And the reason is, and this is not a guilt message on giving. I told you that already. None of us give like that because we would be scared to death to give like that. I mean, that requires an incredible amount of faith because she is giving in such a way that she is banking on God for lunch because she does not know how it will come. She's giving in such a way that it requires such faith. I don't know that my giving requires faith like that in such a way that says, if you don't come through, I'm done. She gave in such a way that she did not know where dinner would come from and was throwing herself wholly upon God and saying, I, I'm all in. You've got to provide. You've got to take care. She is not someone to be patted on the head. She is a giant of what it means to have faith in God, to throw your life wholly on him and bank on him with no reservations. I can tell you this. If I was there, I would have talked her out of it. I know for sure. I would have told her, listen, keep one. God is very happy with 50% of your tithing. Nobody gives 100%. Save some for a crumb of bread. 
I would have talked her out of it. I know I would. I would have said it was irresponsible or irrational or something. It's recorded here. I, I, I can tell you that because that, that's my natural bent when I see displays of faith even in our day. I, I remember Joe and Lisa. Joe and Lisa were with us in Boston when we were in Boston before we moved here. And we had talked about planting together, and we moved, and Joe and Lisa couldn't move at the time. They were hoping for a job to work out. It didn't work out. We moved. Two years later, they were still in Boston. Their desire was to come. I remember Joe calling me and saying, Brother, we've been trying for two years to come down. We really feel like God wants us to be a part of the church plant. We sense that he's calling us to come. Nothing has opened. So he told me this. He said, I'm thinking of just resigning my job and just moving down. I can tell you this. I said, God did not tell you that, right? <laughs> I am pretty sure. I, I don't think so, right? I, I, I did everything short of don't, right? I asked questions. Are you sure? I, the brother quit his job, moved down, signed a lease on an apartment here. At the time, Josiah was a few months old. So I'm thinking he's got a wife and a six-month-old baby, they moved down. They signed a lease. They got an apartment. A week later, Joe had a job. That's what Jesus... Now, now that's, that's a wonderful story. But here's my point. What I want to highlight for you is not so much her giving for today, but her faith. Her faith. And to say, listen, what she did is she pushed all her chips into the middle of the table and said, I'm all in. And Jesus, for that reason, is pointing her out and saying, when I called you guys to be a disciple, when I said, come follow me, when I said, take up your cross and follow me, that's what I was talking about. It's someone who pushes all their chips into the middle and says, Jesus, I am all in. Perfectly no, imperfect, impoverished, two coins worth, a penny's worth, if you will, but all in. Everything that I am, everything about my life is all in. That's what a disciple is. It's someone who says, I'm all in on Jesus. I'm all in. My college pastor, Stanley Key, he, he used to say, listen, we think that we're impressed because we, we give 90% of ourselves to God. You say on a test, 90% is really good. I mean, you'd be impressed. 95%, 99%. What if you said, I give 99% of myself to God? His illustration would be, imagine a young man got on his knee. And he pulled out a ring and he said to a young lady, I love you with 99% of my heart. And I promise I will be faithful to you 99% of the time. She would go, oh, that is so impressive. No. A disciple has gone all in on Jesus. Listen, there will be this tug of war between you and him as you keep trying to call back parts of your life and you decide who is Lord. Is David's son really David's Lord and your Lord also? But for today, this passage is saying, give up again. So the one thing I'd ask you is, what part of you is held back from Jesus that you need to push into the middle of the table? She's such a model disciple. She gives her bios, her life, because in two chapters, she is getting you ready for the one who will give his bios for you. He is the poor one who will push everything into the middle of the table and say, I'm all in, all in on you, my whole life, my bios given for you. And so we respond by saying, 
than our bios given to you. I'd ask you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're on the verge of it. You're sort of teetering. I'd say to you, push all your chips into the middle of the table. Don't negotiate this. Don't hold some of it back. Say, I'm all in. I'm all in on Jesus and his good news and his gospel, and I'm ready to be a disciple. And if you're here and you are a Christian, what part? Maybe it's your money. This passage would shout that to you. He doesn't want 90% of it. He wants all of it. Now, how you tithe and all that is different, but he owns that part of your life. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's some bitterness that you're not ready to let go of, and you're ready to follow Jesus with everything except that. Whatever that thing is, I want you to hear Jesus pointing to that thing in your life and saying, that's got to go in, into the offering box, because your whole bios, that's what it means to be a disciple. Let's pray together.